0: Welcome to Haunted Road, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and & Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised.
1: In 1972, an often-cited parapsychology experiment took place. The experiment, conducted by Toronto parapsychologist Dr. A.R. George Owen and psychologist Dr. Joel Witten, was called the Philip Experiment and it sought to create a fictional character, a ghost, through a deliberate methodology, and in turn, communicate with this ghost through a series of seances. The research team consisted of Dr. Owen's wife, Iris, an industrial designer and his wife, a heating engineer, an accountant, a bookkeeper, and a sociology student. The research collective settled on a character named Philip Aylesford, referred to as Philip throughout the bulk of the experiment. His fictional history was a smorgasbord of real history and complete fabrications. Per the experiment, Philip was born in England in 1624, served in the military throughout young adulthood, and was subsequently knighted at 16. Philip was serving in the English Civil War, where the parliamentarians and royalists went to war over issues of England's governance and record on religious freedom when he met and later became a close ally for Charles II, king of Scotland, England, and Ireland until his deposition in 1651 and later king from the 1660 restoration until his death in 1685. Philip, though, never had a chance to see much of Charles's rule, having fallen in love with a Romani girl. She was accused of witchcraft and burned at the stake. Despondent, Philip died by suicide in 1654 he would have been 30 years old. The group worked tirelessly to contact their invention, their fictional Philip, hoping that by sheer belief in him, they could, in effect, will the spirit of Philip to exist. These attempts at first proved unsuccessful. Dr. Owen then changed the experiment conditions, altering several key environmental variables, dimming the lights, for instance, to more closely resemble a conventional seance. After Dr. Owen made these changes, participants reported phantom breezes, vibrations, vocal echoes and a rapping sound whenever questions were posed to Philip. The table was said to tilt and move about the room without human contact. Audio, visual and first-hand accounts documented this phenomena. I've had luck with conducting experiments very close to this one. If any of you have ever watched my show Kindred Spirits, you may remember an episode called Zombie Boy in Season 5, where Adam Barry and I very much create a spirit, give it a backstory, and proceed to interact with it. What does any of that have to do with the historic haunt we're about to discuss, you ask? Well, we'll get into that at the end of this podcast, but keep it in the back of your mind. Until then, let's take a little trip to one of the most haunted states I know, Louisiana, and explore one of the most haunted locations I know, the Myrtles Plantation. I'm Amy Bruni, and this is Haunted Road. Built in 1797, the Myrtles Plantation in St. Francisville is an outstanding example of a raised cottage plantation house. Particularly noteworthy is its size, its front porch extends 107 feet, its handsome cast-iron vine and great pattern galleries, and its interior plasterwork. St. Francisville, where the plantation is located, is a charming, pocketbook-sized town with lavishly restored Creole-style cottages, and is situated on the Mississippi River. Myrtle's plantation hovers just beyond St. Francisville's historic district up a long and meandering road. The plantation has manicured grounds of moss-draped oaks and crepe myrtles. As for the main home itself, it's an aged two-story cottage just around a bend in the road beyond the plantation entry gates. The structure appears delicate, even dainty, with outstretched porches below and galleries above, all bedecked by ocean-green shutters and decorative iron railings. The original home, called Laurel Grove, seemed destined to be a home of note as it was built by Whiskey Rebellion conspirator David Bradford in the late 1790s. Bradford was born in Cecil, Maryland in 1762. He was one of five children born to Irish immigrant parents. He first made a name for himself in Washington County, Pennsylvania, as a successful attorney businessman and deputy attorney general for the county. His first attempt to marry ended only days before his wedding, nothing is known about this, but he later met and married Elizabeth Porter in 1785 and started a family. The family had a beautiful home built in Pennsylvania, but had little time to enjoy it. David was forced to flee the house in October 1794 after he became involved in the infamous Whiskey Rebellion, and legend has it that President George Washington placed a price on the man's head for his role in the affair. The Whiskey Rebellion began in 1791 in the wake of a new federal tax on all distilled spirits, including whiskey. The tax law was intended to cover debt from the Revolutionary War, but because of the popularity of whiskey, it was easier to preserve for longer than rum or beer, it was opposed by many. In places like the western frontier, where farmers relied on whiskey as a means of using up surplus materials as well as a form of currency, The whiskey tax was hotly resisted. In the summer of 1794, a mob of 500 men attacked the home of a tax inspector in Pennsylvania. President Washington rode at the head of an army to suppress the insurgency, with 13,000 militiamen provided by the governors of Virginia, Maryland, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. The rebels all went home before the arrival of the army, and there was no confrontation. Of the 20 or so arrested, all were acquitted, but it scared those involved and scattered some of them to the wind, one of whom was our Whiskey Dave Bradford. Leaving his family behind, Bradford fled Pennsylvania. He first spent time in Pittsburgh before settling near what is now St. Francisville, Louisiana. Bradford was no stranger to the area. He had originally traveled here in 1792 to try and obtain a land grant from Spain. When he returned in 1796, he purchased 600 acres of land and a year later built a modest eight-room home that he called Laurel Grove. He lived there alone until 1799, when he received a pardon for his role in the Whiskey Rebellion from newly elected President John Adams. He retrieved his family in Pennsylvania and they settled into Laurel Grove. When David Bradford died in 1808, Elizabeth, or Eliza, inherited the property. In 1817, their daughter, Sarah Matilda Bradford, married Clark Woodruff, a lawyer who would become a judge. Woodruff would also eventually take over ownership of the property from Eliza, but in the meantime, manage the property for the family. Both Woodruff and Bradford enslaved people. In 1820, Eliza had 24 persons in bondage, Woodruff had 5. By 1830, Woodruff had 33 enslaved persons associated with him, while Eliza had 10. According to author Troy Taylor, Woodruff expanded the holdings of the plantation and planted about 650 acres of indigo and cotton. Together, he and Sarah Matilda had three children, Cornelia Gale, James, and Mary Octavia. However, tragedy was on the horizon. Yellow fever was a threat in New Orleans and South Louisiana virtually every year during the warmest months. Between 1823 and 1824, Sarah Bradford Woodruff died, along with two of her children. Yellow fever may have been the cause. Though legend handed down says otherwise, historians insist that Sarah Woodruff and her daughters died in a yellow fever epidemic. This is hotly contested, and we'll get more into that shortly. Sarah went first, on July 21, 1823. Their son, James, passed almost a year later on July 15. In September 1824, daughter Cornelia Gale was the third Woodruff to die from yellow fever. But they were not alone, as the epidemic raged through the Louisiana region. Clearly, the 1820s were probably emotionally challenging for Woodruff, but not financially. The 1830 census listed property ownership at 4,000 acres and 480 enslaved people. Woodruff eventually bought the property from his mother-in-law, Eliza Bradford. At this point, Eliza had outlived her husband, her daughter, and at least two grandchildren. She lived with Woodruff in the estate until her own death in 1830. In 1834, Woodruff sold Laurel Grove to married couple Ruffin Gray Sterling and Mary Catherine Cobb. The Sterlings were a very wealthy family who owned several plantations on both sides of the Mississippi River. On January 1st, Ruffin Gray Sterling and his wife, Mary Catherine Cobb, took over the house, land, and buildings. They enslaved 173 black men, women, and children, ranging in age from infancy to 70 years old. As prominent members of the community, they remodeled Laurel Grove to reflect their status. They enlarged and embellished the house orchestrated the planting of a myriad of crepe myrtle trees and renamed the plantation the Myrtles. They added the ornate European chandeliers and elaborate floral moldings formed of moss and clay plaster. The completed project nearly doubled the size of David Bradford's original house. Ruffin Sterling died from tuberculosis in 1854, so Mary assumed the responsibility for the property. Ruffin Sterling and his wife had nine children The most notable daughter for our purposes was Sarah. Their oldest son died in 1854, the year his father passed away. Her daughter, Sarah Mulford Sterling, had married attorney William Winter in 1852, and Mary Cobb requested Winter's help in managing the properties. Then came the Civil War. The Civil War certainly affected the family and the people they enslaved. Many of the family's personal belongings were looted and destroyed by federal soldiers and the wealth that they had accumulated was ultimately in worthless Confederate currency. To make matters worse for them, Mary Cobb had been invested heavily in sugar plantations that had been ravaged by the war. She eventually lost all of her property. Through her financial challenges, Mary decided to grant Sarah and William Winter the Myrtles for their personal use. Additionally, William was engaged as the family agent and attorney. In 1867, the Sterling Winter family lost the home due to debt after the Civil War, but Sarah Winter later regained her father's property. It isn't clear just what happened to put them in the financial position to retake the home, but it seemed as though things were improving for the family. Until, in 1871, William Winter was shot and, according to legend, staggered upstairs, reaching the 17th step before expiring. A newspaper account tells a slightly different story. William was called to his front door by some person unknown on the night of the 26th at about seven and a half o'clock. And as he appeared at the door of his sitting room, there being no one in sight, he requested to know who wished to see him. And at that instant, a double barrel gun was discharged at him, loaded with seven large buckshot, six of which took effect upon his person five in his breast and one through his neck, killing him instantly upon his stand. He fell and expired instantly without uttering a word. There are a number of theories and rumors about his death, especially regarding political or economic motivations about the plantation itself. According to a contemporary newspaper account, Mr. Winter was not known by his most intimate friends to have any enemies or to be involved in any controversies calculated to create bitter and homicidal passions against him. He was a gentleman of mild and dignified deportment, calm, prudent, and temperate in all things, who, whilst not engaged in professional pursuits, passed his time in the bosom of a happy family, dispensing a liberal hospitality and living the life of a Christian gentleman the death on the 17th step detail seems to have been a later addition to this legend. Together, the two widows, mother Mary Cobb Sterling and daughter Sarah Sterling Winter, lived at the Myrtles until their respective deaths. Mary died in 1880, and Sarah died in April of 1878. A Sterling son named Stephen owned the property until March of 1886, when he either lost it due to gambling or could no longer manage the debt associated with the property. After this time period, details of the property became more scarce until the middle of the 20th century. By the 1950s, the property surrounding the house had been divided among the Williams’s hairs and the house itself was sold to Marjorie Munson, an Oklahoma widow who had been made wealthy by chicken farms. It was at this point that the ghost stories of the house began. They started innocently enough, but soon what may have been real-life ghostly occurrences took on a life of their own. Many of the stories, especially the details that culminated in the story of a ghost named Chloe, traced to Marjorie Munson. According to oral tradition, Munson experienced odd things in the house. Wondering if perhaps the old mansion might be haunted, she asked around and that's when the legend of Chloe got its start. Locals and members of the Williams family who owned the house after 1889, swapped stories about a woman in a green bonnet who haunted the halls of the Myrtles. The woman in those accounts was older than Chloe and specifically not characterized as enslaved, and rumors of an affair didn't exist yet. When Munson heard this account, she soon penned a song about the ghost of the Myrtles, a woman in a green beret. Over the years, as we've seen in many reported hauntings, the story grew and changed The Myrtles changed hands several more times, and in the 1970s, it was restored again under the ownership of Arlen Deese and Mr. and Mrs. Robert F. Ward. During this period, the story grew even larger and evolved to include poison murders and a severed ear. Up until this point, though, it was largely just a story that was passed on by word of mouth, and it received little attention outside of the area. James and Frances Kiermine bought the Myrtles seemingly on a whim after passing through the area on a riverboat. That happenstance changed the course of the Myrtles' haunted history in general and specifically impacted the legend of Chloe. Frances Kiermine and her husband Jim were the first Myrtles owners to turn the plantation into a business, a bed and breakfast that hosted a mystery dinner theater and offered tours. The Kiermines published stories of the hauntings well beyond the scope of the local community and paranormal experts and enthusiasts from all over the country were enthralled. Apparently, the earliest accounts of Chloe to appear in print appeared in a November 1980 issue of Life magazine and in Richard Weiner's book, Houses of Horror. Both of them mentioned the poison deaths of Sarah Matilda and her daughters. Remember those names from the earlier yellow fever epidemic? In the 1980s, National Enquirer dubbed the site America's Most Haunted House, and the appellation, Stuck. From the 80s and beyond, the hauntings associated with the property have snowballed. Additional deaths, up to six more murders, were added to the list. One of them, Lewis Sterling, the oldest son of rough and Gray Sterling, was claimed to have been stabbed to death in the house over a gambling debt. However, burial records in St. Francisville state that he died at the age of 23 in October 1854 from yellow fever. Now, what about the legend of Chloe? The story says, shortly after Clark Woodruff married Sarah Bradford in 1817, he noticed a teenaged enslaved girl named Chloe as she went about the property. Woodruff brought Chloe into the main house to be his concubine but Chloe had a bad habit of eavesdropping on the judge. He caught her with her ear pressed to the door of the gentleman's parlor while he was engaged in business one day. As punishment, he had Chloe's left ear cut off and banished her to the plantation kitchen behind the big house. After the mutilation, Chloe wore a head wrap to disguise the wound and a single earring in her other ear. Banishment didn't please her at all. So the legend goes, a plan was devised. Chloe would bake a birthday cake for the judge's twin daughters and spike it with the poisonous leaves of the oleander plant. The cake would sicken the girls, but Chloe would nurse them back to health and all would be forgiven. Except, again, according to legend, that didn't happen. The two girls and their mother ate enough to die from the oleander poison and Chloe fled to the quarters for the enslaved. But she was found out and a local judge ordered her hanged. After her death, her remains were dumped into the nearby Mississippi River. Due to her violent death and improper burial, Chloe haunts the big house and the grounds of the Myrtles today. So the story goes. As for the specter of a woman in a green turban, that very well may be true, but there's no evidence that she's Chloe. It comes from a family oral tradition and wasn't meant for the general public, Nonetheless, she may have been what prompted the owner Marjorie Munson to start asking around in the first place. Frances Myers claimed that she encountered the ghost in the green turban in 1987. She was asleep in one of the downstairs bedrooms when she was awakened suddenly by an African American woman wearing a green turban and a long dress. She was standing silently beside the bed holding a metal candlestick in her hand. She was so real that the candle even gave off a soft glow. Knowing nothing about ghosts, she was terrified and pulled the covers over her head and started screaming. Then she slowly looked out and reached out a hand to touch the woman who had never moved, and to her amazement, the apparition vanished. Through research, author Joe Nickel hasn't found any sources that provide any evidence that the Chloe tale is true, attributing it, if at all, to legend. Archives in St. Francisville do nothing to enlighten the situation, Their holdings have not proven that Chloe existed at all. Historical sources don't support the existence of Chloe, let alone the crimes associated with her. The legends usually claim that Sarah and her two daughters were poisoned, but Mary Octavia survived well into adulthood. Finally, Sarah, James, and Cornelia Woodruff were not killed by poisoning, but instead succumbed to yellow fever. So all of that being said, many claim the legend of Chloe is just that, a legend but those connected to the home sometimes say otherwise. William Winter's spirit is believed to haunt the home since his murder, as is the spirit of his mourning wife, Sarah, eternally in black. Allegedly, the labored footsteps of Winter's ghost can be heard on the stairs. As I mentioned, legend has it that once reaching the 17th step of the staircase, Winter had climbed just high enough to die in his beloved's arms. Ever since, it's been claimed that ghostly footsteps have been heard coming into the house, walking to the stairs and then climbing to the 17th step, where they, of course, come to an end. There's mention of a Confederate soldier spirit who's polite, but there's also a rumor that specters from the Union side have also lingered on the property. There's a story that, during the Civil War, three Union soldiers broke into the Myrtles with the intent to rob the home. However, they were allegedly shot to death in the gentleman's parlor, leaving bloodstains on the floor that refused to be wiped away. Researchers claim to have discovered no historical record indicating that any of this happened, and specifically the story has been refuted by some descendants. Another spirit attributed to the property is that of a 1920s caretaker who wanders the grounds, sometimes telling tourists that the place is closed. During another attempt to rob the home, this time in 1927, a caretaker was supposedly murdered. But again, according to historians, as of now, there's no evidence that it happened. The Myrtles also has a very famous haunted mirror that hangs in a prominent position. This mirror contains dark shadows that are said to be the imprinted spirits of the dead wife and children of Judge Woodruff. Another legendary haunted artifact on site is the portrait of an anonymous man hanging in the second floor foyer. His expression is believed to change right before viewers eyes and his eyes seem to follow people as they move through the room. So, the Myrtles is quite a storied piece of property, no doubt. It's certainly seen its share of dark history, tragedy, and death, so it's no wonder it's haunted. But let's hear some of these stories firsthand from the Myrtles property ambassador, Hester Eby. Miss Hester worked at the Myrtles for decades and even now retired continues to be their spokesperson, and she does have some very fascinating stories. After that, I want to dive a bit into what I think may be going on at the Myrtles and how even if the legend of Chloe isn't true and she never existed, she could still very much be haunting the old plantation home. All right Now, I am currently joined by Miss Hester, Hester Eby, who is now the property ambassador for Myrtles Plantation. She was the former director of tours, but she recently retired, but she's still very much involved in Myrtles. So thank you for joining me, Miss Hester. Thank you for asking us. Of course. Now, Myrtles is interesting because every other location, just about on Haunted Road, I have visited in some way. And Myrtle's is one of the few that I have not yet had the pleasure to pay a visit to. So I'm learning along with all of the listeners about the property. And, you know, the history is vast, it sounds like. So before we get into it too deeply, can you just kind of tell us how you got involved in the property and how long you've been involved with the property?
2: First of all, I'd like to invite all of you to come visit us. It's really an experience. It's easy to talk about, but once you've been with us and spent the night or even spent a couple of hours on the grounds, taking a few photographs or whatever, it's amazing. It's really an experience that you want to have for yourself. But I started the Myrtles about 20-some years ago, and like anyone else looking for a job, I didn't have transportation at the time a long time ago, so I called. And the owner at the time was Frances Kermin. And she said, well, come by, please, and let's talk. And so I did. And I stayed at the Myrtles for years. In fact, I'm still there. But, you know, we're known to be haunted. And it's not anything that just started yesterday. I mean, I'm an old woman. I'm in my 60s now. So even when I was a child living in Woodville, Mississippi, if we drove by the Myrtles, it's like, don't point over there. Don't point over there. It's bad luck because it's haunted. So not just the tail told; it's really true. Anything from hearing footsteps for no reason or hearing your name called and thinking that it's a coworker because it's their voice and they're into what they're doing. But 1796 was when it was built to the stage that it is now. 1794 is when it started. And a man named General David Bradford started it all. He came from Pennsylvania, built the Myrtles, and it went on to his son-in-law. And then from then, 1796, uh, the Sterlings added all the beauty that we see today to the Myrtles. I mean,
1: we have taken a pretty deep dive into the history in the first half of The episode. And there's just so much history to it as far as who has been associated with it over the years. And it sounds like there's also a lot of stories that kind of have come from it that may not necessarily actually have happened, (laughs) you know. And it's like kind of trying to weave through, you know, what's historically accurate and what is lore and things like that. And you said in the beginning about how important it is to visit it. And I completely agree with you. You know, it's so interesting because I've heard stories for so long about the Myrtles. And I have friends that just feel very attached to it in a way that it's just a very important place to them. They go back and visit every year. And it's just kind of one of those haunts and one of those places that draw people in. Do you think there was kind of a bit of that when you started? Did you feel just kind of compelled to be there in some way?
2: Well, when I first started, of course, as I said, it was a job. But mm-hmm. then the first day that I got there, the beauty of it, it's just overwhelming. It, I walked into the parlors and it was like I was walking into something out of the movies that you just didn't know would exist in San Francisco, Louisiana. So you have an attachment to it. And the more people visit and the more you get to know people and the more they tell you their stories about the mysteries of the Myrtles and you can relate to it because, well, you know, this happened to a couple of few days ago or whatever, you know, it's conversation. And when I first started working at the Myrtles, unlike now, people just didn't believe, they didn't talk about ghosts. Mm-hmm. They just didn't believe some of the things that happened at the Myrtles and other haunted places as well, I'm sure, actually happened. But I mean, we have proof of it. It's too many of us
1: that oh, chat yeah. with
2: each other and talk with each other and experience pretty close to the same things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So what was the first thing that happened to you there that you knew something was going on at the
2: Myrtles? Well, the very first thing that happened is when, and this was very, very, this is the first day that I came. I didn't realize what was happening at the time, but a few months later, I realized I came to, on the parking lot, it was the early morning, I didn't see but one car, and I was looking for the owner at the time, so I didn't see anyone, and my first thought was, you you know, you got the times mixed up, no one is here. I came to the front of the house, and the door was ajar a bit, just open just slightly, and there was a lady, she was on the staircase, I mean, just the lady, And she begged for me to come up. And of course, you know, I hadn't been there before. I didn't know. I I wouldn't do that. So I kind of peeped in and I called. And I don't know if I said hello there or whatever, but no one answered. And by the time I looked back up after kind of peeping my head in and calling, the lady was on the staircase kind of begging for me to come up. So anyway, I didn't do that. And I left the door the way it was and I was headed back to the parking lot. And Frances Kermin was in a little garden area where the sister cistern or a well is and she was doing flowers and she said, Hey. And so we got to talking and whatever. And I remember very well she had on a green moo moo, that's you know, a big dress, and uh mm-hmm. purple pumps. And purple is my favorite color, so I know this goes pumps. And so we were talking a bit, and she said, can you start work tomorrow? Well, first of all, you don't know me that well. You hadn't got a resume or anything on me. It kind of puzzled me just a bit. But I said, yes. And she said, oh, you can start doing tours. I said, tours? What's that about? Because I wasn't familiar. And then she went on and told me, I said, I know nothing about this house. And she said, oh, I'll give you the information you need. And so I started and then it went on, and about three weeks, well, I guess maybe a month, maybe a little over a month or so, maybe, I asked her about the lady on the staircase. She said, oh, don't worry about her. But that lady, I mean, she was a spirit. She was a lady. Yeah. And she just begged for me to come up. She was not in an antebellum gown or anything like that. She had on what looked like maybe a day dress or something that would have been popular for the period. I don't know. It was so quick. but. The lady, she was telling me, was a spirit. She existed, but not in human form. I mean, she was a lady begging for me to come up.
1: Yeah, we hear that a lot where people will see an apparition and it just to them looks like a person. And it makes you wonder how many times we've seen apparitions in our lives and just didn't realize that they were a spirit because they do look so solid.
2: exactly. Exactly. We have photographs, and one of the most famous one is a lady, and she's in an antebellum gown, but she's on the staircase. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, she's seeing who's coming into her home. That's the way I feel.
1: Yeah, and so who do you think that was? Do You have any
2: idea? I don't know because I wouldn't go as far back as the eighteen hundreds. The way the lady looked, I really don't know. We, with our cameras now, even our phone cameras or whatever. We're picking up things so quickly. You know, it's not like the old photographs used to be, you have to wait for it to get developed and all that. We're picking up things that are actually happening around us that we're not aware of. Right, right. I have no idea of who she was, but as I said, I don't believe she goes as far back as Mm -hmm. the 1800s, the way she was dressed. On the contrary, you can tell they're dressed in period costume. We had a young man not that long ago, thought it was a thrill to have his wife come to a haunted house. It was a surprise. That happens all the time. Mm -hmm. And she realized she was at the Myrtles, and it's like, honey, I don't know if I can stay in the main house, you know? And so we got ready to move them to one of our cottages, which people do want to stay on the grounds but not actually stay in the main house because of the age and because of so many stories. And he went upstairs. She went to the other room. He went upstairs to get the rest of their stuff and their luggage. And he took a while, but when he came down, he said, Oh, you know what? I met the owner. And we, you know, kind of looked at each other. And he said, Yeah. He said, I was lucky enough to meet Mr. Winter. And he said, It's great that all of you dress in costume. Now, I never dressed in costume, but our tour guides do. And it adds to it. People love that. But Mr. Winter owned the home in the 1800s. And for someone to tell him that he was Mr. Winter, and then someone to be up there in costume, because he said, you know, he even tipped his top hat to me when we first started our conversation. But who he talked to was someone from the past. I don't doubt he talked to him at all.
1: That's fascinating.
2: Yeah. But when he went over, you know, to talk to his girlfriend and let her know that they were all settled for the night, uh, she still didn't feel comfortable staying.
1: Mr. Winter, he was shot, right, according to legend. Did
2: that actually happen or? Oh, yes, it really did happen. He died on the 17th step of the main staircase. And the story goes that Mr. Winter, he had a few things going on. He had married the Sterling's daughter, their only daughter, and he was from St. Louis. He had left a lady in St. Louis spoiled, so the writing said. But in that time, he may have even kissed her you know, that was considered an automatic engagement. Right. And he owed a huge gambling debt. And he had a good chance of becoming governor at the time it was written, but he had quite a few enemies as well. So the story goes that someone wrote up hollering gentleman in need of an attorney. And Mr. Winter came out of his gentleman's parlor onto his North Porchway to answer the caller. But when he got to the Porchway, whoever it was on horseback, shot him and continued to go but Mm -hmm. the blast blew him back into his home and he made it through the parlors trying to reach his wife and the 17th step is where he died in her arms as he was calling for her she was trying to get to him and this is where you know he took his last breath so a lot of times people hear the footsteps they hear a lady's cry And sometimes Mm. the smell of perfume is overwhelming to people that are in that upstairs suite where Mr. Winter and his wife shared. So it is said also that a lot of people will put a ball on the 17th step because Mr. Winter didn't like children playing ball in the home. And I don't know if they did it or not. But on the 17th step, if you place a ball there, the story goes, and I have Not seen it personally happen, but I've seen it where people have set up their cameras and you will see that ball come off that 17th step and it comes off with a force as if someone Mm. kicked it or something.
1: Right. So when I was going through the history, I think that sometimes people assume every spirit or ghost is from like an older time period, but the history has just been kind of constant with the Myrtles as far as deaths associated with the property, who has lived there over the years. Now, you having spent so much time there, who do you think is maybe the most prevalent spirit in the plantation?
2: I would guess Chloe is, because she loves the idea of being around people. She seems to be fascinated with jewelry. And so I do believe out of all the years that I have been there and out of personal things that have kind of happened to me, you just wonder, well, you know, was this something out of the supernatural, or was it just something that happened, you know, that just does not happen every day? But I think she is. In fact, I think people see her more than we realize, because we have a restaurant on the grounds as well, so everything you need is right there. We've had guests just on the back porch in the rockers, you know, in a late evening, and they told us how nice it is to have everyone, the waitresses in the restaurant, in costume who they're seeing, I don't know, because our waitresses are not in costume. But it was an area where you would go back and forth from the butler's pantry to get food prepared for the household. And who they're seeing is probably people from the past.
1: Hmm. That's so crazy. That happens like in Gettysburg a lot, too, where people will think they're seeing reenactments and then turn around and no one is there. (laughs) You know, they're just assuming that it's people in costume. Now, I feel like The ghost of Chloe, like, that is a story, too, that I don't know is always properly portrayed. You know, it sounds like not everyone is convinced that things happen the way they say they did historically. And that's something like we're always trying to clear up. What have you heard? What is the story of Chloe, according to what you all think?
2: Well, the story goes that the second owner, Judge Clark Woodruff, General Bradford's son-in-law, took on a mistress that was one of his house servants, and she was caught eavesdropping on some of the family business. And as punishment, he cut off her left earlobe. Mm. Well, it left her so upset that a few days later, she baked the birthday cake for his oldest daughter, used the juices from a popular leaf, the oleander, baked it in the family's cake, killing the judge's wife, Sarah, and two of their children. And there are three of the ghosts, along with Chloe, the slave, who still live there. After Chloe confessed to the poisoning, she was killed. And this is the story that we tell. But I do want to say, you know, Chloe was a nanny over the children, so she took care of them. It's just a personal feeling that after she was sent to the fields, away from the children, that she wanted to do something to get back in the good graces of the family. So, this is, in this is in my opinion, that mm-hmm. she did the cake, not thinking that, put the oleander in a birthday cake, not thinking that she would kill the children by any means or the mother, which also died, but that she would make them ill. Having took care of them for years, she could come back in, knowing what was already wrong, nurse them back to health and get on the good graces of everyone again and be invited back into the household. But it was overdone, regardless to why the reason, it was overdone and they all died. And after Chloe confessed to the poisoning, I believe she confessed thinking someone older or wiser would be able to save the family. Uh, Of course, she was killed. But that is the most popular story and a lot of people question that story, but I do not because something happened there and she and the children are very often seen. And a lot of people say that she has a knack of showing up. We have a mirror in the foyer that's very popular. I'm sure you've heard about it. And it's totally the face of the children and Chloe show up. Without a doubt, I have seen that. And Mm. people have said that they took the picture and it looks like at first children are there, but then it looks like something larger, shape of a person, comes and kind of covers the children as if she's pushed them away. I believe it's Chloe and our children that were poisoned, but I believe she's still trying to protect them no matter what. So that's the most popular story of the Myrtles in my viewpoint. And a lot of people have seen in that mirror the image of Chloe as well as the children, and most of the time the children first. And it's this image coming as if it's protecting them. A lot of our guests have been, especially in the old side of the home, which would have been the only side that was there during Chloe's time. A lot of times they've gotten warm, pulled their covers back, wake an hour or so later it's only two of them, but yet they're tucked in tightly. Things like that has happened. We used to have school, COVID has now kind of delayed us with everything, but we're on the National Register of Historical Places. So a lot of school groups come to visit us. And I have had a couple of times, same day, two kids asked me, are you hungry? And one little girl asked me, I guess she was, I don't know how old she was. She was in elementary, but she was with her mother. And there was a group of about 15 of them. And we were waiting for them to tap their turn to go into the house. So I was just killing time and talking to them or whatever. And when I got to the end of the line, she and her mother were the last people. And she said, why are you dirty? And I kind of looked down at myself because it was after lunch. You know, I'm I'm known to do that. And it looked pretty decent. You know, I didn't look like I had spilled anything. And she said, are you hungry? And I realized as she was talking to me, she was looking to the side of me as if someone was behind me. And she was not talking to me at all. But I was trying to answer her. And then I said, honey, are you talking to me? And she said, no. And then she turned around as if she was talking to someone behind me. And uh, I looked at her mother and her mother looked at me, we kind of smiled or whatever, because you never want to, I don't know how parents feel. So mm-hmm. we never say, oh, she sees a ghost and they're children. So right. I, did, I was waiting for the next step from her parents. And then her mother kind of winked at me and I winked my eye back. And then after they went in, the mother stayed out and talked to me for a second and she said, I really think she was talking to someone else behind you. I said, yeah, I get that feeling too. Yeah, I mean,
1: that's really the way to handle it. People always ask me like how to handle ghosts and children. And I feel like you guys were doing the exact correct thing with just kind of not make a big deal out of it, because then that makes them afraid, Whereas if you just kind of act like it's, you know, just a normal happening, then they just move on from it and don't dwell on it, (laughs) you know?
2: see things I believe very often that we do not. I had a young man uh, with his grandfather and they came on tour and I was just talking to him or whatever. And if we have extra time, we listen to a story that they want to tell. And this gentleman told me, he said, he and his grandson were riding around on their property and they do it almost every other evening on a four wheeler. And when his grandson was younger and the little boy was about 10 at the time they were visiting us, uh, when the little boy was younger, he would tell his grandfather to stop by this house that used to belong to an old lady that lived on the property way before he bought it. And he wouldn't get off the four wheeler, but he would wave at Miss Sadie, and he would do it. You know, he just do it because he asked him to. We do all you know, things for our grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And so this particular evening, after he stopped seeing Miss Sadie, and she would wave at him from the porch his grandfather stopped by Mercedes house, you know, gave it a pause. And he said, Papa, why are you stopping? He said, don't you want to wave at Mercedes? Sadie? Mercedes Sadie's not here anymore. She's gone to heaven. And so after that, they never stopped by Mercedes house. But when he was at the Myrtles, we were talking, we were in the ladies parlor. He had his attention to the gentleman's parlor, which is right next door for some reason. And eventually You know, he moved a little bit toward the parlor, moved a little more, and we knew as if he wanted to go in that room and he couldn't wait for us. So I told his grandfather he could go ahead. So he went in the room and he went to the corner. And when he went to that corner, I knew it was a corner that a lot of kids have said that there's a little boy playing marbles. And I didn't hear the marbles on the floor because sometimes we've heard that. It's a wood floor. But he went in that corner. And he acted as if he was talking to someone. So he held his little hand out and then he closed it. And we kept, you know, we kept talking to each other. And when he got into the next room, he opened his little hand to show his papa that he had a rock and his papa asked him, where did he get the rock from? He pointed in there, a child gave it to him in there, he said, and then all of a sudden he stopped talking to us about it. And he did his little finger over his lips like you would do when you were saying, you know, be quiet. Mm -hmm. And so he did that. And we knew that the person in there that he was seeing, and we could not, was telling him not to talk to us about it.
1: And they sound like such interactive spirits. You know, the fact that people see them so strongly and think that they're just a living human being is so fascinating to me. Like, how often are people having experiences there?
2: Well, when I was there on a daily basis, it was something that we could not predict. It would at least a month would not go by without someone having something happen. And a lot of times they didn't realize it at the time. They would send us photographs back saying, who is this? You know, and of course, you know, you can't always answer. You can, yeah. in fact, you never are sure of an answer, but you can tell them "Well, this story was told about this area, you know, but some people I think are attracted to persons from their past, you know. I think that sometimes people from their past seem to kind of connect at the Myrtles. And I could be wrong about that, but I've seen so many times we had some guests that came to visit and they went on a trip that they do every year. Well, unfortunately, one of their friends had passed on and he was not able to come on this trip. They sent me a photograph. And they said, look at this. Well, I'm looking at the photograph and I don't know because everyone seems like, you know, just normal. I I thought they meant I could see something in the background or like other photographs. Who is this or whatever? But then when I looked at the two pictures that they sent me, I saw nothing. And then on the little letter that they sent me, which I should have read first, I guess, the little note, it says that Don is here. And so then they have a little arrow that they drew to the man that is Don. Well, Don looks like everyone else to me. But Don is the person that was no longer with them.
1: That is wild. It makes me wonder, like, what is it about the Myrtles? Like, what's going on there? (laughs) You know? No,
2: I know. But it's look not to be. And I know you're not because you're so used to this and you travel to other places so much. And people are just so they're not like they used to be. You know, it's nothing to scare you. It's just I know it's kind of unbelievable, but it happens. You know, it just happens. I mean, I don't know why they're drawn to the Myrtles. I know that we have a lot of past that involve, you know, ghosts and mysteries and whatever, but it continues to happen. It just rolls on. We've had guests that have stayed in one room, and the ladies, they're overwhelmed with sadness for some reason, so much so that they're shedding a little tear, and they don't know why. But we're sensitive as women. And Mm -hmm. a lot of times, too, if it involves a child, that really kicks in. So this particular room, the Fannie Williams room, there's always kind of a sadness there. And people have said the children still play in the closet there. And I do believe it.
1: Yeah. I mean, now you're you're making me want to visit even more. I always have wanted to visit. Now, how did everything, I know that Ida didn't really affect that area in particular, but I know the Myrtles was housing some evacuees and everything. So how are things faring
2: there now? Uh, Everything is going as well as can be expected. And we were lucky in this area. So we were able to help our neighbors and help our friends. And the Myrtles still has some guests staying with us because they're unable to go to their home right now. And that's a good thing. But in fact, you know, Louisiana, you've seen it on all of our commercials, and it's really, really true. As our lieutenant governor and our governor says, we're a set of people that look out for each other, and we're strong people, and we're not leaving this area because of hurricanes and whatever else, because we love where we are. But to answer you, the Myrtles is still sheltering people, and we'll continue to do it as long as needed. And that's just the way it is.
1: Well, Louisiana is one of my absolute favorite places to visit. I've been really fortunate to see quite a bit of the state, but I definitely need to check the Myrtles off at some point very soon. I do really appreciate you sitting and telling us some great stories, and I think everyone's interest is very piqued. I'm sure people will be paying a visit very soon. If they want to book a stay or anything, they just head to the website, right? Are you guys doing tours right now?
2: We are. We only close for tour the short period that, you know, we're asked to because of COVID. But everything is as close to normal as we can get it. And we welcome our guests. Bed and breakfast still open. As I said, our restaurant is outstanding. And mm. some of the food that you would only get in the South is certainly there. But, you know, we have tours every day. And, of course, in the evenings, this is what really is exciting to me. And I love it. Because on Friday and Saturday nights we still do evening tours, and those tours are focused on nothing but ghost stories. Mm-hmm. And I love that. And a lot of times when our guides start those tours, you'll have someone it's like children in a classroom, have someone in the back wants to say something, and they'll raise their hand and they have a story to tell. And we take time for that, because it's an hour tour, and mm-hmm. it's, it's enjoyable.
1: I love that you guys are doing that because, I mean, I just feel like the history of the Myrtles is incredibly important. And then I think sometimes when you add in ghost stories and legends and mysteries, it just really gets people interested. And, you know, they learn so much as a byproduct of that as well. So I love what you're all doing there. And I can't wait to visit. So thank you so much for spending some time with me. I know we went back and forth trying to make this interview happen. I'm so glad it finally happened and I really appreciate it.
2: Glad it happened as well. And I'm so sorry I missed you on Friday. But you know, St. Francisville is a beautiful town anyway. So, yeah. you know, we have other plantations as well. So, I mean, we're just in the heart of everything. And I want you to come and please let me know when you're coming. It's going to be big news anyway. Probably everyone (laughs) will know. But let me know when you're coming so we can meet each other.
1: I would love that. So thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time.
2: All right. Thank you, love. Bye-bye.
1: The reason I cited the Philip experiment at the beginning of the podcast was because after going through the history and research of the Myrtles, I was convinced the story of Chloe was a legend, a story passed down for decades, something we see all too often in the paranormal. Many times, these bits of misinformation can be truly harmful because they cause existing spirits to be misidentified or ignored, and in turn, frustrated. But as I spoke with Miss Hester, and she relayed the story of Chloe so strongly, it dawned on me that whether the story of Chloe actually happened it has been so long perpetuated one way or another at the myrtles and become so incredibly detailed and elaborate that our creation of chloe could very well be walking those halls the same applies for every other rumored spirit or death that took place there maybe william didn't make it to step 17 and fall dead in that spot but in our minds he did and in the minds of the thousands upon thousands of people who have visited they all stared at those steps They all envisioned this man making it to step 17 and collapsing in his love's arms. And then slowly, the footsteps started. Am I saying this is for sure what's occurring at the Myrtles? Absolutely not. I have yet to set foot inside, to be honest. The stories of Chloe could very well be true, just documentation of it well and purposefully hidden, as we've seen in so many other tragic instances when researching enslaved people of that time. Yet, if it is what's happening there, what does that mean for other hauntings? How do we determine which are of actual spiritual origin and which are coming from us? Regardless, as Miss Hester seemed to allude to, there is something very peculiar and very special happening at the Myrtles, something that seems very different from any haunting I've encountered before. Armed with all this information, theory, and speculation, I intend to visit very soon, and I hope you will too.
0: Haunted Road is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The podcast is written and hosted by Amy Bruni. Executive producers include Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. The show is produced by Rima Ilkayali and Trevor Young. Taylor Hagerdorn is the show's researcher. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 18 plus.